Hey, Phantomaniacs, and welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I'm your host, Phantom Troublemaker, and I don't know how long I have to talk because I woke up this morning with a piercing uh, feeling in my throat. I'm not going to say pain, it's just annoying, but it feels like I've got something stuck in the back of my throat. You know that feeling, and you know it's no good. Uh, excuse me, I'm trying to keep hydrated. Uh, and I, I've just been exhausted all day. I've done nothing. Uh, which granted, it's not like I'm necessarily a go-getter and I'm doing things all day long normally, but today in particular, I have just been beat. I hope this is a bug and this will pass soon because I have a wedding to be part of. Well, I have, I have to work tomorrow and then I have to go straight to a rehearsal dinner for a wedding and then saturday i am in a wedding uh and i i don't feel great i don't feel great but i'm I'm gonna get this done i'm gonna get some sleep i'm gonna work i'm gonna get uh you know i'm gonna make it happen i want to talk to you guys real quick about something that's been pissing me off a lot lately and it's when you go on facebook and you see those Universal horror fans, or fans of He-Man, or fans of of uh, WWE. I don't, I don't know that I've seen one like that, but you know what I'm talking about. There are these uh, these posts that are advertising T-shirts, and the T-shirts are usually pretty cool looking if you're a nerd. Uh, and, and you know, maybe they've got stuff like fans of Green Bay Packers for Sportos. I don't know uh, because you know they are directing their marketing towards what you're interested in but uh, these pages with these products are thieves they are creating unlicensed merchandise and making money off of things that don't belong to them now there's a whole big mess to get into as far as copyright goes and I don't want to get into that, but these people are shitbags in that they're just making money off stuff that's not theirs. It's not even whether or not they're, uh, they have the rights to. It's just they're lazy. They're not doing work. Uh, so fuck them. So don't buy shirts from those kind of places. Uh, I, I'm just, I can't tell you how angry it makes me. And the reason I'm so upset right now is friend of the show, Mark Maddox, who is one of the most talented artists I have ever had the pleasure of knowing personally, uh, has just posted a T-shirt that features his art that is not authorized. And Mark is an independent artist. Uh, he is not, uh, you know, he, he's not a guy who's just rolling around in big piles of money. He, but he's fantastically talented, and these people have chosen to steal from him and make money off of his blood, sweat, and tears. And in my opinion, there is nothing more fucked that that uh, you can do as a thief. Obviously, there are worse crimes, but profiting off of somebody else's hard work like that 
you know, essentially downloading a digital file and then having shirts printed up, you're a piece of shit. And don't support that stuff. And I know there's a lot of people out there who just don't know any better because you see an ad on Facebook and you're like, oh, well, it's on Facebook. It must be legit. Uh, and it's not. Don't buy that stuff, people. Just try and do a little bit of research and and know what you're buying, who you're buying it from, and just know if it's one of those fans of or fans or whatever bullshit t-shirt pages uh, they're probably stealing from a hard-working, talented artist. And I think that's horrible. And I hate to have started the show off with such an aggressive thing, but I feel very passionately about this, as you can tell. And, uh, you know, it's one thing when somebody's doing, uh, as an example, uh, I don't want to get too specific. It's It's one thing if somebody's doing sort of a movie tribute type of thing. Uh, to me, there's some gray area there. If somebody's doing a shirt of like Freddy Krueger in a bikini or something, like yeah, Freddy Freddy Krueger is trademarked or copyrighted or or whatever the deal is with with uh, with an image or a character, but they are still creating art. These guys are stealing art from artists and profiting off of it and that is messed up and that's all i'm going to say about it just before you buy any cool looking t-shirts do a little research and find out if you're supporting an artist or if you're supporting a scumbag uh anyway let's move on well i still have throat left and and boy that's a good way to preserve my throat isn't it yelling about a thing that makes me angry that's going to keep me going for longer but hey you don't want intro you want episode because today on the needless things podcast i am talking to writer bobby nash he's been on the show a few times before but i've never sat down and had a bobby nash episode which is something that needed to happen because he writes for comics he writes novels uh he's got a lot of experience uh with publishing and and whatever else and he's also a wealth of information about just the comics industry uh, i finally got to talk to somebody a little bit about jim shooter who is somebody that well we'll, we'll talk about it in the show but i just I, i'm kind of fascinated by jim shooter at the moment it, it happened a few years ago and then faded a little bit and now it's it's back full force and i got to talk to bobby about jim shooter and because uh, he was the editor in chief for Marvel when Bobby got into comics. He has he had very interesting things and insights and, and knowledge of Shooter that I did not have because I, I came in really uh, after Shooter was already gone from Marvel. So we have an interesting conversation about him. We talk a little bit about Bobby's process, not too much, more about uh, the work of being a writer, not necessarily the the writing. But what goes along with it as far as promotion and stuff, we just had a fantastic talk, and I think you guys are really going to dig it. And uh, now I'm going to go take a lozenge and some Dimatap and probably crawl in bed so that I can hopefully get up at 3.30 in the morning and go into work because that's delightful. So there, there's my angry intro and my isn't Bobby Nash great intro, which he is, which you will find out in just a few minutes here. And that's all I got for you this week. I will be back next week. Uh, I don't want to say yet, because we had a little bit of a delay on one. So next week will be a surprise. But we've got some good stuff coming up over the next few months. And before too much longer, before we know it, 
it's going to be time to start Dragon Con coverage, and I've got some really exciting stuff lined up for that. So, guys, uh, once again, thank you for listening. Oh, speaking of thank yous, that's the whole reason. Uh, that That's how the conversation with Bobby Nash started, is he wanted to talk a little bit about Patreon, uh, which, as you know, patreon.com slash phantom troublemaker, nailed it, uh, is now live. And you can go there, check out the prizes, see how you want to support the show. And uh, hopefully sooner than later, patreon.com slash Bobby Nash will be active as well. We'll see about that. That was not part of our recorded conversation, but it's possible that could go up as part of the patron cast at some point. We'll see how that goes. But anyway, uh, here's a little music, and then here's a little Bobby Nash. What have you been up to? I have just been writing, 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 and and traveling to cons. About the con scene, because you, I'm jealous of of like you and Mike Gordon and uh, artists and whatnot, because you guys are actually creating a product. Like you have a thing, whereas what I do is a little harder to shop around. <laughs> Right, because you can't hold it in your hand. Right. Well, yeah. I can hold it in my hand, Bobby Nash, but nobody wants to buy it from me. Um, right, right. Well, that's that's a whole different industry. <laughs> um, so when, when you're going, like, how do you determine, how do you do your research on cons? Like, how do you decide what's going to be worth your while, what's a good place to go, uh, What what's involved in that? Well, for me, um, because I'm... I'm not at a point where conventions are paying my way. Right. When I go, I'm paying for my travel. I'm paying for my hotel, things like that. So, which is why you need a Patreon. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, but what I, you know, first thing I do if I, I find out if I know any people that have done the con before, and I, I generally will ask, you know, what's the con like? What are the crowds like? It's hard to say. Will I make money because? You can do the same con three times, and one time you'll make money, the next time you won't. You know, that's that's a little different. But you try to get a, a feel for, you know, size of the crowd, a uh, feel for how it's run. Because, um, you know, we've, we've all been to shows that have been run extremely well, and we've been to shows that are not, that are, you know, leave something to be desired in the running part. And so those are the first steps, how far it's going to travel's. Uh, how much it's going to cost me to stay in the hotel? Is it worth it? Do I know anyone going to that area that maybe I could travel with to cut expenses down? Sometimes that helps. Um, is the con- what 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 does the convention offer me? Um, I when I I personally will I have a, a cutoff limit in my head of what I'll pay for a table, things like that. Sure, sure. Because I feel that when I do a convention, I am offering a service to that convention. And, you know, a badge and table, I figure, is usually worth what I do for the convention. Yeah. Because I promote them a lot. I agree. I do panels. 
So I'm not just there selling stuff all day. Right. I'm, you're you're providing a service. Right. And so, you know, uh, there are cons that I would love to do, but I just don't have three or four hundred dollars for a table. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, it's hard to make that amount back because everything I have on my table, all the books I have, I had to buy them from the publisher. Now I usually get them at a half price discount or. 40% discount plus shipping. So if you look at it, I'm, I've got a discount, but I still have to pay for them. It's still an investment on your right. part. It was just like anything. Like when I when I talk about wanting to do t-shirts, well, they don't come out of thin air. Exactly. <laughs> I got to I gotta pay you to have those t-shirts made and then hope that people are going to buy them. And if they don't, mm-hmm. I'm stuck with a bunch of t-shirts nobody wants. Exactly. Yeah. And so those are things too. I mean, if you sell a hundred, if you sell a hundred dollars worth of merchandise, you know, if I sell a hundred dollars worth of books, really, I've only sold fifty dollars worth of book, maybe right. forty. Right, right. So, I mean, if you look at it profit wise, so those are things that you kind of have to take into account. So, some of these bigger shows, I would love to set up and do them, and I do sometimes get invited, but I have to say no because I just three hundred, four hundred dollars for a table is. As as cool as those shows are, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna get anywhere close to making that money back. So those are decisions that I have to make. Um, sometimes it's a matter of who's running it and who asked me. Um, I did a show last weekend in uh, Little Rock, Ar- Arkansas, which is a nine and a half hour drive one way for me. Um, I did it. Primarily because I, I'd never done the show before, but I had several friends that had done it the years before, and they were like, it's a great show, you'd love it, come on up. And I was invited by a person that, you know, I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And I originally I had uh, was supposed to be, you know, traveling with someone, which would keep the cost down, and that person had to bail, so I ended up paying on oh. But So it was a bit, or, bit of expense more than I wanted, but you do those things sometimes because, you know, to try them out. Sales weren't what I wanted, but I had a great time. So, you know, you have to kind of balance those things out. And you never know. Sometimes trying a new a new convention in a new city, sometimes you're the shiny new thing. And they go, ooh, we got to go see what this guy's got. Well, yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, going, and I, I'm sure you've seen this even more than I have, going to regional cons around the southeast, you do kind of see the same faces over and mm-hmm. over and over again. And it is exciting when you see a new person. Exactly, yeah. Because sometimes I'll do shows. I do a lot of the local one-day shows or the small shows because they're local, and they've supported me, and I go and I do them. And I I don't always sell stuff, and then that's cool because a lot of times these people are like, I'll just catch you next time. Right. Or I've seen you, you know. Or, sometimes it works the other way. I have had people come up and go, you know, I see you at these things all the time. I should figure I should probably buy something. Well, and that yeah, and that's that's another point of of sort of consistency though, is eventually you will get that you know you're you're always here and I've never talked to you. It's time to talk to you. I'm sure every creator that does you know those shows with consistency gets that. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And you know you yeah, I mean, I I love talking to people. I I I'm not. I would probably sell better if I was a better salesperson. I'm not a high pressure salesperson. If you come to my table, I'll say, "Look, I have books. Please take a look at them, and I'll tell you anything about them you want to know." And that's generally the sales pitch. Well, and there's a line though, because you know, on the one hand, you've got the guy that's super nice to chat with, and then 
you walk away from their table and they're sitting there like, shit, I didn't tell them to buy anything. <laughs> but then on the other side of that, you've got the guy who does do the hard sale mm-hmm. and you're like, I'm just going to get away from this guy as quickly as I can because this is annoying. Yeah. So you've and got, I, you got to walk a line. Yeah, and I don't want to be that guy. Right. No, you don't. And so I, you know, so but I try to I try to put forth an air of welcome to the table, you know, and I talk to people and I get a lot of people asking for advice or, you know, about publishing or writing or things like that. How do you break into it? I, you know, I get a lot of those questions. Every once in a while it's it's very cool. I had a had an experience earlier this year where I had a gentleman come up and I'd met him at some of the other shows and when he was writing his first book and he sold his first book and he come by and he said, I just wanted to thank you for all your help because some of the stuff you told me was very valuable in finding my publisher for my first book. Oh, that's great. That kind of stuff makes you feel really, really good about yourself. <laughs> well, and every once in a while you're, you'll launch a uh, massively successful podcasting career as, as you did with me. Well, yeah, because that I—I uh, I don't know if you remember or not. It was one of the Atlanta Comic Cons, mm-hmm. and you know Mrs. Troublemaker. You've known her yep. for years. Yep. And she and I were there, and she was like, "You—you sh- you should go talk to Bobby Nash. He's a really great guy." And I was like, "Award-winning Bobby Nash doesn't <laughs> have time to talk to me. That's ridiculous. Why would I talk? Why would I waste his time?" And she said, "No, go over there and talk to Bobby. He's great." And I went over and talked to you, and and through you met Mike and Mike and. Got involved with ESO, and and now here I am today with my very own show and game show and all kinds of other things that that honestly, if she hadn't pushed me to talk to you, you know, I I don't know where I'd be with that kind of stuff right now because it was in part that you were you know so friendly and ready to talk, and and obviously Mike and Mike were as well. But I was just kind of like, oh, I, I can just go up and, and talk to people about random things and get on shows. And now I talk to them and ask them to come on my show. Exactly. <laughs> and, and now it's full circle because here you are. For, here I, I think this is your third time on, I think. Something like it, yeah. Because yeah. you were there, I think maybe the third or fourth show that we did live from Odin's. That's right. Yes, we we talked. We talked something comics. Where, where you explained to me the proper colors of uh, the Fantastic Four's costumes. Yes, yes. Uh, and then you were on pretty recently. We talked about DC cheat. Yes, yes. Or, that's or right. superhero TV shows. Yeah, 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 shows. yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but now it's it's Bobby time. So what I want to talk <laughs> about, uh, I think we discussed a little time a little bit on your first appearance uh, about your influences, but. What's interesting to me is that you write novels and you work in comics. And to me, they would seem like entirely different parts of your brain working. Oh, they are. Absolutely. How, are. But what what started you off? Was it novels? Was it comics? Or what, what made you feel like I can do either of those things or one or the other? Where, what did you start with? I started out and I had this grand dream. I had it all laid out. Don't we all? (laughs) Had it all laid out. I was going to be a comic book artist. Oh, okay. And well, and that makes sense because you're still to this day still sketching. Yep. So I used to like, like most teenager boy, teenage guys that are into this stuff, I was writing and drawing my own comics and, you know, 
And I never thought of myself as a writer, even though I was writing the comics I was drawing. Where it finally started to, I started to think about writing, I noticed other art friends, by the time I was in college especially, other artists that I know were coming to me wanting me to write comic stories for them to draw. And so I would do that, even though I didn't, I still never thought of myself as a writer. And I, I credit my friend Jeff Austin, uh, who himself is a fantastic uh, artist. And he sat me down one day and he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something here you're probably not going to like. <laughs> Which is never a good thing. And But he goes, he goes, look, he says, I see what you're doing here. He says, I'm going to tell you. He says, you know, and I mean this with all the niceness I can muster. You're never going to make it as a comic artist. You're just, you're, you know, you, you're not there. And, and it's true. I mean, looking at, looking back on it now, he's right. I, my, my work was not quite at, was not at a professional level artistically. Um, he says, no publishers going to, you know, he says, you could get better. He says, but what I see, and I'm paraphrasing a lot of this, but is what I, what I see is I, he says, I, he says, you're actually a really good writer. And I'm like, but I'm not really a writer. And he goes, who wrote all this? And I go, well, I guess I did. And he says, and he says, I think if you focused on one, like you're splitting your focus between writing and drawing and writing and drawing, and he's like, if, if you focused on one of these, I have a feeling you'll excel at it. And I think that for you, that choice is probably writing. And it's, it's one of those things, sometimes you need that kick in the ass to... Oh it's sure, still, you know, and 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 it happened at just the right time where I was willing to listen to that and not get all offended because somebody didn't like the way I drew, which is a tough thing to do because you're absolutely right. Like we all, every once in a while, need that person to say, "Look, this thing here isn't working out for you. You need mm-hmm. to focus your stuff elsewhere." And you're right. They've got to hit it at the right time. Otherwise, certainly with me, I'm just going to get all pissy and be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Get out of my face. Yeah, exactly. You you have to. It, it just so happened that I was in the right place to hear it at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, you know, you have a point there. I, I said it begrudgingly, but he had a point <laughs> there. And and so I kind of took it to heart, and I... I, I tried focused a little more on writing. I learned more about the craft of writing because at that point I was writing, I was writing as an artist writing. I wasn't writing full scripts. I was making notes, drawing them, and then so I actually learned a little about what the look, scripts look like. Which when, when I discovered that there are no set formulas for writing comics, there are interesting. None. There are none. Talk to ten writers, have ten writers show you their scripts, you're going to get ten different looking scripts. They all have similarities, but they're all, there's no uniformity. Well, and that's, that is something that in the little bit of, of, I guess, research or talking or whatever that I've done, I have seen that there's so many different ways. You have some writers that will just write a story and essentially leave it up to the artist to do whatever they will with it you have some that will give them thumbnails uh you've got some guys that will literally almost draw the comic and hand it over to the artist mm-hmm. it, it seems to vary a lot uh and, and the, the way that the dialogue is done seems oh, to vary yeah. quite a bit as well 
Oh, absolutely. And I, I started out doing it, I would do the thumbnails because I was still thinking like an artist. Mm-hmm. And so I would write the scripts and I would, I would do the thumbnails with it because the thumbnails were helping me think. Because there's more to, like when you look at a comic page, a finished comic page, there's more to it than drawing five panels with five different actions. You still have to draw it in a way that your eye follows and the flow through the panels. Could you tell that to uh, most of the artists working in comic books today? Yeah, a lot. Less, yeah, that that does seem to be a piece of information that does not get to people. That that, that um, slipped away somehow. Yeah, you should be able to a a good rule of thumb. You should be able to look at a comic page with no dialogue and be able to tell what's happening now you don't get into the nitty-gritty details sure sure but you should be able to tell me in general what this story what's going on in this story from looking at pages with no dialogue if you can't do that then there's something missing from your page let me ask you real quick uh because this is somebody i became obsessed with a few years ago when i found his website and uh recently he he has well i guess a couple of years ago he started updating again uh, and, and has kept it current, uh, but Jim Shooter, mm-hmm. how familiar are you with him and and his views? Because I think he's wonderful. I'm sure he has his detractors, and I'm sure some of them have good points, but most of what I read from him about storytelling seems very correct. Yeah, he's he was very responsible for. I mean, he was he was the editor in chief at Marvel during really one of Marvel's heydays. In the yeah, 80s. yeah, yeah. For the listeners that don't know, mm-hmm. Jim Shooter, uh, he started off as the young, and and I think is still uh, the youngest published comic book writer there I has think, been. Think so. Yeah, he was writing Legion of Superheroes at eighteen. Or was it younger than eighteen? Was it? Was I it thought 16? it was sixteen. I think it's. 16. It was okay. It was sixteen for for DC Comics, uh, working for Mort Weisinger, and later on became editor in chief at Marvel and literally pulled Marvel back from the brink. Yeah. Got their books on time, uh, and was editor in chief for one of Marvel's very best creative periods, in my opinion. Well, he was the guy. He was editor in chief at the time when, when he took over. There were a lot of books that were on the verge of cancellation, and I'll give you some examples here. Daredevil was being published every other month. They were ready to drop the axe on it, and so the artist who had just started on Daredevil says, "I've always wanted to write. Can I write some Daredevil scripts?" And they're like, "Sure, Frank Miller, go ahead." <laughs> we're we're canceling the book anyways. What? could you possibly do to mess it up right meanwhile in another office there was a book called thor which was on on the cancellation block and there was this artist who had worked on thor before who had gained a little notoriety since then says man i'm a huge thor fan before you cancel the book i'd like to write and draw some some thor and they're like (laughs) sure walt simonson go ahead we're canceling this book you know what can you screw up there's, you sense a trend here, right? Yeah, yeah. 
this happened in a few more titles. Uh, you started getting things. This is where you got things like John Byrne on Fantastic Four. Larry Hum on G.I. Joe. Larry Hum on G.I. Joe. I mean, it, there was a lot of this because where all these books are on the verge of cancellation, let these guys try something new. And, and, it, and as, as history has shown us, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff came out of that. Now, the problem, where the problem got in later in Shooter's tenure, they're letting all these people do whatever they want to because these books don't sell. So they do these, they try these out of the box storytelling methods and now the books sell. So now that the books are selling, they start going, okay, well here's the next story I'm doing. Now. Oh no, 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 you can't do that in a Thor book. Right, right. And then the, the books, you know, eventually the creators leave and the books start going down again. And so, uh, I've heard good and bad things about Jim Shooter. I have met him once. Oh um, really? I met him once at a con. I used to write for a. I used to write for a, a convention magazine, and uh, and then I I eventually did some websites where I was doing interviews with people, and I ran. I had my own fanzine for a while called Odyssey Magazine. It was a little thing I used to put together myself, sold ads, put them in comic shops for free, and did that for a few years. And I interviewed a lot of people, and he was doing. I reached out to him. He had, was editor in chief of Broadway Comics. Oh yeah, I just read about Broadway, which was Lorne Michaels' mm-hmm. Broadway uh, Video Entertainment. Yep. And so I they I, I e- e- emailed them and, and or maybe it was a letter. This may have been in there. This may have been pre-email. Probably was pre-email. I think I yeah I did send them a letter because that that's very important in the story. So I, I wrote them a letter. I, they started sending me. I got all kinds of like comics in the mail before they would come out. I would get like the the ones with they were all on newsprint with no fancy covers, and I was so I, I could write about them. But I I talked I asked about doing an interview, but I never received the interview questions back. Which, let's face it, was not uncommon. Sure, yeah, believe um, me, I know. <laughs> so, fast forward maybe six eight months. I get a phone call, and it's it's. I answer the phone, and the other the guy on the other end goes, "Hi, I'm looking for Bobby." And I said, "Well, this is Bobby." He goes, "Hi, this is Jim Shooter." Oh my gosh! And I'm like, "No, really? <laughs> Who is this?" <laughs> and so he goes, "No, no, Jim Shooter." He says, um, "And Broadway was still going, but it was near the end." Yeah. And he goes, "I'm calling because one, I, I, I we owe you an apology." He says. We're in here moving around our offices. Uh, we're, we're, you know, moving the offices around. So we've, we've moved stuff and we moved a filing cabinet. And behind the filing cabinet is a letter you wrote us requesting an interview. Uh-huh. And we had set it up on top in the inbox and it had fallen behind the filing cabinet. And so he's like, I'm calling to say, I would love to be, do this interview with you. And I'm like, great, let's do it. And we did the interview and, and it, it was a very cordial, very fun experience. But it was it, it was just surreal. The whole thing. It's like, oh yeah, we found your letter behind the behind the file cabinet. Took. <laughs> wow, so that's yeah. great. Yeah, I so just I, uh, I, I've he's definitely on my list of people that at mm-hmm. some point I'm gonna shoot an email to to see if maybe I can get him on the show. But I just have. Uh, it sounds like 
he's one of those guys that, and it's funny cause it's kind of like my dad. Uh, cause I, I work, my day job is where my dad used to work. Oh, okay. And when I first started there, a lot of people that were there had worked with and for my dad. And, uh, there were some people who thought he was the greatest guy ever. And these people were the hard workers, uh, the people that were very good at their jobs and produced. Mm-hmm. There were other people that thought my dad was an asshole and who were not very nice to me because of how they felt about my dad. And as time went on, I learned that these were the slackers. These were the guys who did not work very hard, who did not do their jobs very well. Mm-hmm. And I think a, at least a portion of the Jim Shooter scenario is that. Yeah. Most, most of the stories I've heard about him that tend to be, I guess, on the negative side. And it's and it's just not a unique thing to his tenure as editor-in-chief because there certainly were Stan Lee stories that were much the same way. Is that sometimes the, the I've heard stories of like he would approve something and then he would forget about it because mm-hmm. you know he's overseeing the whole company right and then months later he would see books and he'd go yeah we can't do that and they're like but you said we could and they're like well now I'm saying you can't and there were a lot of create there were a lot of creator egos you know it happened sure sure. And and sometimes, you know, if you're told you can do something and then you're told you can't and you've already set things in motion, you know, stories don't make sense. And But again, not an, not an uncommon thing and certainly not just a shooter thing. Um, you've heard the story probably about the time for a while that Iron Man's armor had a nose on it. Yes, yes. But for our listeners that have not, yeah. uh, tell it, share it. We're... You know the 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 way the story goes is that at one point in looking at a at a cover or something, Stanley remarked that, you know, how does Iron Man breathe? How does like you know because he's he's got a flat face and he's like, what happens to his nose? Shouldn't he have? Shouldn't the Iron Man armor have a nose? So the editors are like, Stan wants a nose on Iron Man, so. Which may not have necessarily even been the case. Right. He's just thinking like, huh. He's thinking out loud. Right, He's make- right. And so they go and they're rushing and they're drawing noses on pages. And <laughs> there was the, there was the cover for that next issue. Jack Kirby had drawn this, this Iron Man that's flying through space directly at the reader. And now it's got this big ass nose, triangular <laughs> nose piece on it. And the book comes out, and Stan goes, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> and they're like, "Stan, you said he needed a nose," and he goes, "I did," because <laughs> you know, again, Stan was was was. There were so many books that he had, you know, he was making, and as soon as he said it, he probably forgot he said it. Yeah. And it was, I think, it was the same kind of thing with Jim Shooter. A lot is, you know, somebody comes up and knocks on the door and goes, Jim, we want to have, we want to have, uh, Dark Phoenix, uh, wipe out this planet. Then we're going to have her lose her powers. Great. Yeah. You know, a month later, wait, what? Yeah. 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 (laughs) I, that one I am familiar with and and he's discussed and, and what, 
the reason that I do have so much respect for him and that I do tend to sort of lean towards his side on a lot of things is if you go to his website, uh, which is, I think, just jimshooter.com, all of the stories that he shares, he has no trouble saying when he's been wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not self-aggrandizing. Like, you can, if you're an intelligent person, you can listen to someone talk or read what they're writing and tell where the BS is and tell where, you know, when when they're blowing their own horn or, or, or maybe telling half-truths. Like, you can kind of pick up on that kind of stuff. Right. If you, re, if you go to anyone's website and read a few months' worth of content, you've got a pretty good idea of where they lie on the BS meter. And I feel like he's pretty straightforward. Uh, I feel like he tells it like it is. And when he starts to talk about storytelling, he, so far, has never said anything that's wrong. Uh, He has a very old-school idea of comics, but I think his the core principles that he talks about as far as page layout, as far as what each issue of a comic book needs to include as far as information goes, that kind of stuff, like the basics, he's 100% right. Oh, absolutely. There's There are certain things that we we use different tools to create comics today, but the same basic things are there. I mean, you have to be able to... You have to know storytelling. Comics are not five individual or six individual images on a page. That those images need to go together. And, and you know what? That's not even just a comic book thing. That's a movie thing. It's a TV thing. You know. Uh, you know. I don't know. What, I don't know how how you how the the Batman versus Superman thing is has gone here on this site. But um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, well, I'll, yes. I'll tell you very um, quickly. Uh, it was it was not the movie I would have made. I was able to enjoy it though. Uh, but in the end, it's the ninth highest grossing superhero movie of all time, and that makes it a failure because it stars the three biggest superheroes of all time. Right. Well, there's the no movie- way any Iron Man movie should have ever done better than a Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman movie. That is crazy pants. Right, because Iron Man, at best, when those movies came out, was a D-list character. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was a guy that showed up in the Avengers every once in a while. So, so regardless but, of what anybody thinks about Batman versus Superman or how much they enjoyed it, it is demonstrably a failure. Well, I remember there's an interview with Zack Snyder where he's like, he's, he's defending the movie going... But I'm I I love the comics. Look, I pulled this scene from the comics, and I pulled this scene from the comics. Right, right. And I'm like, yeah, but the trick is you have to make those scenes work together. Yes. And if you if you do a comic book with five individual, if you do five pages of a comic, and those five pages have nothing to do with each other, you're not telling a story. You just got five individual pages. Yeah. Storytelling is very important, and there's a lot there. There's a lot that a writer brings to it, to the process. There's a lot that the artist brings, and they bring a they each bring a different 
thing. You know, I don't know exactly what words to use, but there's sensibilities in the writing and the art that each bring to it. Um, you know, there are certain terminologies I think everybody working in comics should know. Uh, I remember being very stunned. I mentioned to an artist, um, when you're writing, I write for the page turns. Yes. Uh, page turn reveals, you know, odd numbered pages are always on the right. So when you flip over to page two, if you want to surprise the author or the audience, have your surprise be on an even numbered page. Yes. Because if your surprise is on the right and you're reading the left page, it's not really a surprise because you can see it. So you write for those type of things. And I mentioned that to an artist because the artist wanted to move stuff around. I was like, but the page turn reveal, that throws the page turn. And he goes, what's a page turn reveal? (laughs) So... And, 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 you know, it's like, you know, we, we all learn as we go. You know, certainly I didn't go to school for any of this. I learn a lot on the fly. I've learned a lot from talking to other creators. I've learned a lot working with creators. I've learned a lot about storytelling from some fantastic artists that are like, hey, how about we do this for transition scenes from one scene to the next? Or, you know, here's a cool way to to seamlessly flow from one thing into another. And you you learn a lot from each other. And I think when you get a good artist and a good writer together, you, you know, there's a magic that happens there when those two thing, those two creatives come together. Yeah. I think you can tell when people are, even as a reader who, who maybe is not as well versed in the mechanics of it, you can tell when there's a, a good synergy between the writer and the artist, uh, when you've got something like uh, saga, Mm-hmm. they're on the same page, uh, so to speak. Uh, back, you know, what kicked me off Uncanny X-Men when it was Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri, I feel like they had a special thing going. Y- you can tell when the two have are complementing each other. You can just tell when it's working, mm-hmm. uh, when, there, when there's a connection. Now, you can't always tell when there's a disconnect, but you know a good comic when you're reading it right Uh, and and speaking of which actually before we get too much further into the process i want to i want to cover who are your guys like when you were coming up who were the artists and the writers that stood out to you that were were kind of your heroes and your inspirations well i when i really got when i really got into comics i'd read a comic i'd read comics here and there but when i really started to get into them know who was who, know who the creators were. When when I was 12, we moved uh, from Doraville to where I live in the Winder area, which in Georgia, if anybody not in Georgia, that means nothing to you. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Even if you live in Georgia, that may mean nothing to you. We moved <laughs> when I was 12. and I should have just, just went eat simple. Uh, we moved when I was 12. <laughs> and the first people I met when I moved were guys that were in the comics which I did not have where I lived before. So now I had friends at school, and they started introducing me to books that I was unfamiliar with. And this was early 80s. So I was introduced to Uncanny X-Men. And this was at the... I remember the first issue of X-Men I ever read was the one where it's got Wolverine on the cover and Dead Kitty pride at his feet. 
Okay, okay. And you open it up, and on the inside, Wolverine's jumping at Mystique, and she, like, slashes his throat and kills him on page two. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is good. Let's keep reading. <laughs> and I read, some my friends had several, so we were trading off comics back and forth. So I I got into X-Men. I'd never read X-Men before. Um, someone introduced me to the Fantastic Four. I'd, I was familiar with the cartoon. Never read the Fantastic Four before. And, and so you're, I, you're talking about the cartoon with Herbie yes. rather than the Human Torch, right? Yes, yes. And so someone put a John Byrne Fantastic Four in my hand, which oh. you know tra- changed my life because I became an instant Fantastic Four fan. Someone put a, a, a Walt Simonson Thor in my hand. I got another friend that's over here that's going, oh my God, this guy doing Daredevil, you've got to read these. And we were just we were each buying with our limited funds comics and then we would read them and trade them man you you really were i mean granted it is not referred to as the golden age but you really were coming up in the golden age of marvel uh, from, yeah. from my perspective yeah and then so i'm getting into those things and then then a friend of mine says hey have you read the new teen titans so I'm reading the new Teen Titans, and then my uh, another friend goes, you know, and and I'm I'm jumping a few years around here, sure, sure. But then I get another friend here that goes, oh my god, I just found this new book here, new uh, read these Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I was I was reading all these things, that, you know, when they were they were starting up and these things, you know, when these things were happening, and I wasn't really as familiar with what happened in Thor. You know, before Walt Simons, and now later I did because I started going in and looking for back issues. Well, and, and back then, though, I feel like you didn't have to be. No, you really didn't. And but I really just I devoured these things, and I you know, Captain America was awesome. That you know, was the Mike Zek years, which was gorgeous covers, and just made you want to read the book or. Spider-Man. Now, Spider-Man was my, my entrance way to comics. The first comic, the first three comics I remember ever owning. It's possible I had some before these, but these are the first three I remember. Sure. And, uh, I still have them. We had this, there was a store called Zare. I don't know if you got it. Yes. Okay. It was a Dude, store called Zare. Zare is where <laughs> I bought my first, uh, cassette tapes with my own money. Yes. Uh, it was Beastie Boys, Licensed to Ill, and Run DMC, Raising Hell, bought from Zare, uh, I think maybe over near Alpharetta. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway. Well, we were at the Zare in Doraville, because we lived in Doraville. Okay. And so I remember I had the, these were bought on different occasions, but I don't remember which one came first. I bought a three, they had the three packs of comics at the register. Yeah. And I always see two of them, and you never knew yeah, what yeah. that little one was. <laughs> but this one had, two issues of spider-man and i knew spider-man from the cartoon now was it like web of and amazing or was oh, it no, those, actually those those didn't exist then i'm much older than oh that. wow <laughs> okay okay so this was all you had at the time was just spider-man yeah this is in the 70s okay okay <laughs> yeah i'm a little kid this I, was in I, the 70s. yeah i always think we're right around the same age but i think you got a couple years yeah old. so i get these home and i open them up and ooh. It's a, it's a bigger treat. The, the, the third comic, the one in the middle, is also an issue of Amazing Spider-Man. Oh. 
Wow. So, and there are three issues in a row. It's issues 192, 193, and 194. Oh my gosh, that never, ever happens. Never happened to me ever again. Now, who's I, the team on these? Uh, this was Marv Wolfman and uh, Jim Mooney on art. Or, no, Marv Wolfman. Uh, um, oh, Keith Pollard and Jim Mooney inks. That's it. Okay, okay. And the the one ninety two uh, Spider Man is fighting the Fly in the winter over the natu- the Museum of Art of History. One ninety, I'm sorry, it's one ninety three. One ninety two is uh, Spider Man and J Jonah Jameson are shackled together with a bomb. Oh my gosh! On their wrists. One ninety three is the 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 fighting the Fly. One ninety four is the first appearance of the Black Cat. Oh wow. So, I have fond memories, still have those originals in here, fond memories of them. And not to sound like the grumpy old man, but I bet each of those covers was exciting and dynamic and depicted, at least reasonably somewhat depicted, the comic within. I tell you what, that Google Amazing Spider-Man 192, 193, 194, the, the, the cover with them shackled together with the bomb. You're on the cover. It's Spider-Man and J. Jonah Jameson from the. We see them from their back. Mm-hmm. They're not even facing us. And there's this bomb that they're shackled at the arms, and there's a bomb on the shackle. J. Jonah Jameson's freaking out, and the bad guy uh, Smythe is over there going like, I, you know, doing his typical. I'm sitting here know, looking I'm, at it now. It's beautiful. And. So that made me want to read it. And I also remember uh, getting a big thrill because at the end, after they get the bomb off and they're able to get the bomb off the last minute and Spider-Man throws it up, explodes in the air and Jameson starts giving him one of his typical, you know, you're a menace, you Right, right. And Spider-Man turns around and starts to give it to him and he goes, you know what, the hell with it and dives out the window. And I was like, Spider-Man said hell. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a thrill for me. Now, it took me 10 years before I found out what happened at the cliffhanger to the one with the black cat. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Dude, that's how the the first Batman comic that I picked up uh, was... I cannot remember the issue right now. I've got it upstairs. But it was so dark. It was about the ghost of Hugo Strange. Mm. It was really creepy and weird. And, you know, at that point in my life, Batman 66 and, like, the cartoons were my main source of Batman. So that comic for, you know, eight or whatever year old me was like, what is happening here? Why is this so scary? (laughs) But but it took me years before I went back and actually picked up the story arc and understood what was going on. Mm-hmm. Now there were there was another one I'd gotten years later. It was a uh, it was a Marvel Tales where they reprinted Spider Man. Yeah, and I it was one the the covers got Spider Man and and the Green Goblin fighting on, and then at the bottom it's Peter and Harry facing off, and it it on the inside it boasts the return of the Green Goblin, and so there's a scene in there where. He's talking about how the Green Goblin's dead, and he's in this old warehouse that used to be one of his bases, and it's covered in dust, so we know he's not there. But whoever this is, and it can't be the Green Goblin because he's dead, I'm going to just web up a hammock here in the corner, and I'm going to wait. And there's a page leading up to it where you see someone sneaking up on the room. 
and you turn the page, and there's this double-page spread of the Green Goblin flying through. And as a little kid of about six or seven, when I read that, scared the hell out of me. To where I didn't, like, I couldn't read the rest of it that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I miss that sometimes about comics. I, you know, I miss those kind of, you know. Yeah, being being that invested. Yeah. It, there are times in books now where things still surprise me. And that's good. But yeah, a lot of times, you know, I, I, I don't, yeah, I love that, those feelings as a kid of really getting into the comics and, and and I loved them, and and but Spider Man was what got me to the party, and then it was these other books that really kept me. Uh, well, and you were fortunate in that you had kind of a crew that was cluing you into stuff because you can't you mm-hmm. can't read everything yourself. You just right. can't. You you can't even today. Uh, you know, I buy more comics than I should, but I I can't read everything. It's just impossible. I have a friend of my, a few friends. We 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 still do this. We still trade out. Um, you know, Mike Gordon uh, buys a lot of uh, DC. I buy a lot of Marvel. He'll read his, hand them to me. I'll read mine, hand them to him. Yeah. So I'm introducing him now to Daredevil, old Daredevil, because he's never read them, and he's currently reading through Frank Miller's Daredevil. He's never read them before. Oh wow. So things like that so we're able to we're we're about we're trading off books and going like no no this is great this is the stuff you want to read daredevil here read this 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 and this that kind of thing so that's fun i love and plus being able to discuss them after yeah and that that really is that's the best and that i've had a lot of conversations with mike uh because he he is uh much more of a comic historian than i am or will ever be uh, so it's it is always interesting to well to, to discuss modern storylines mm-hmm. and to get the take of you know well this is a reference to this this came from there you know that kind of thing yeah because yeah because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's I mean these some of these characters have been around for decades most of them have been around for de- many decades yeah and there's a lot of stuff that's been done you know cuz you you'll hear older fans go oh we're doing this again right right well to newer fans it's the first time so i, try, I so it's one of those things i'm cautious of i try not to be that guy that's going well you know yeah i like this story when we did it the first time in yeah. 1979 you know <laughs> i try not to be that guy well but, and the, the magic i think is when you can do something that incorporates the past but doesn't require it. Right. Where, where you know, your older seasoned fans can look at it and go, oh, I, I see where that's coming from, but your newer fans uh, who aren't as well-versed can look at it and go, oh, this is just a really cool story. Yeah. And maybe not, and maybe years later when they read it for a second time and, and know their history a little better or whatever can pick up on the references. And I think Grant Morrison, uh, while sometimes he does baffle me, uh, Grant Morrison has told a lot of stories that incorporate the past in, in such a way that it's very rewarding uh, for both kinds of readers. Exactly. Yeah, when you're right, when you're reading Spider-Man, if he's fighting Doc Ock, you don't really need to know everything about every instance they've met prior. You just right. need to know that they've met before and that Spider-Man won. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, really, that's all you need. And if you like that, then you go back and find other, you know. And, you know, it's, yeah, people don't hunt down back issues like they did when I started reading comics. So, 
Um, but then again, there's a lot of trades. So you almost don't have to. Uh, yeah, so. that's true. It is a lot easier. Uh, well, uh, speaking of buying comics, was the direct market, when you first started getting in, was the direct market a thing yet? Were there comic no. shops? Or no. were you getting them from, like, Kroger or whatever? I was getting them at... I was... When we when we moved to Winder, that I'd real I'd gotten them a little before, like we'd go into like a grocery store or a, a, a drug store or something. I'd I'd stand at the at the spinner rack until my mom was ready to go, and if I begged and caught her on the right day, I might get a book. Um, but we moved when we moved to Winder, you know, it was the same thing. There was a we went to the grocery store, we went to the there were yeah the video stores in the nineties. Video stores would have the cases of comics for a quarter apiece. And I would spend hours, especially once I was old enough to drive and had my own car. I would get out of school and I would go to the video store and I would spend hours in the video store. And yes, kids, go look it up. Google video stores. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I would go through these boxes of comics. And I... I was filling up runs. I, I have almost a com- complete collection of Fantastic Four, and most of them I paid a quarter piece for. Wow. I have I have almost every issue from 32 up of, like, in the 60s, 32. I remember, I think my source of comics was Eckerd more often than not because they would have the spinner rack. Mm-hmm. And I would buy G.I. Joe every time we went. That was the first comic that I collected. I've often attributed Uncanny X-Men to be the first comic I collected. That was the first comic that I had to have every issue. Mm -hmm. Like, I I read the first Uncanny X-Men I bought was and, and I I think it's 237 but it's the one with Wolverine on the cover and he's possessed by the brood. Oh yes. And yes, and I actually yes. have a statue of that. That's how big a deal that is to me. That's the first comic where I became a sequential collector. Like poor mom had to figure out <laughs> how I was going to get every issue of this comic. But uh prior to that GI Joe was the one that I know I didn't have every single issue, but every time we went to Eckerd, I got whatever G.I. Joe was there. And I will say this. The G.I. Joe covers made you want to read that book. Oh, dude, absolutely. They had some of the best covers ever. The Michael Golden covers are, without exception, fantastic. Uh, But Herb Trimp... Mm-hmm. Did well. He did a ton of the interior art. On yeah, he those. was there. He was the first artist. He worked on it when it. He worked on it when they were just soldiers before they got all fancy. Right, with, right, right. Where everybody know. was just green. Yeah. Um, and then Rob Liefeld, one of his early jobs, yep. was a GI Joe cover. I remember Mike uh, Mike Zek did a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Really, really gorgeous covers, and yeah, just they those. The covers made you want to pick it up to find out what was going on inside that book. Well, and the covers were important because the G.I. Joe cartoon, they weren't allowed to advertise. uh, Initially, they weren't allowed to advertise the toys. Right. But they could advertise the comic book. Yes, I remember. I remember the cartoon. Yes, cartoon ads, and then it would it would 
the the cartoon it would spin out and whatever the action was on the cover the cartoon would land in that position and that animation was actually much better and, and don't get me wrong the animation in the sunbow gi joe cartoon was fantastic but the animation in those comic book commercials was even better <laughs> yes and if you've not anybody listening hasn't seen them google them they're online you can watch them they are fun and they're short and there's a lot of them yeah yeah there are and, oh so much fun and because that was you know the original deal was hasbro said we, we we're marketing a toy and we want a comic book basically so we can advertise the toy uh and shooter figured that larry hama was the guy for the job and he adapted a project he already had mm-hmm. to the G.I. Joe comic. Which yep. he's another guy that I would love to sit down and, and have a good interview with. Yeah, yeah. And he's fairly accessible. He's at all the Joe Lantas here. I really need to try and get on that. But but yeah, that G.I. Joe was the first one I, I was collecting, but X-Men was the first one that that I was like, I have to know what's happening next issue. Yeah, and the X Men at that point too. Well, for, for there was a good ten years for the X Men title, and I say title because eventually there became a lot of them. Uh, yeah, but yeah. When where Uncanny X Men was the you, that was the it book. Yes. If you weren't, if you weren't reading X Men and you walked into a comic shop, you didn't know what people were talking about. Well, and that's it's interesting to look back at the sort of the early mid eighties, I guess, because X Men and Teen Titans were it. Yes. Those were the top books to the point where that was the crossover that DC and Marvel initially did. Yep. That was like, oh, well, these are our hottest titles. Let's do it. And, and it, you know, to think now that X-Men were ever that much bigger than, you know, Avengers or Spider-Man or anything. Because I, I was always an X-Men and Spider-Man guy. Uh uh, until honestly, until the first Iron Man movie came out, I didn't really know anything about the Avengers. I mean, I had read some comics with the characters. Obviously, you can't you can't be a comic book nerd. You can't be the kind of guy that goes to a comic shop every week without having read some Iron Man books or whatever. Right. But or I, like Secret Wars, obviously. Mm-hmm. But they were never my guys. I, I never really. I, there's only been a couple of of runs of the actual Iron Man book I've followed. But in the 80s and 90s, uh, the Avengers were a fantastic read. Uh, oh, Roger, really? Anytime, if you can find an Avengers that Roger Stern wrote, highly recommend it. You get to a point where it was Roger Stern, John Buscema, and Tom Palmer on the art, and that's where you start getting into the thing where we first meet Nebula, Thanos' daughter, and... Uh, she's, his, I guess, or his granddaughter in the comics. Now she's his daughter. Right, right. But in the, and fantastic stuff. And, uh, yeah, I highly recommend the, the Roger Stern Avengers to anybody. And there's, they're all traded and they're, yeah. I think they're still trading some, but that's where you got all the stuff where the, uh, the, the masters of evil destroy the mansion. Um, they move out onto the island, you know, all this stuff. Oh, is Kane. that the one where Cap's shield gets broken? Oh no! This is years before that. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Because I uh, I've read before about I want to say it was the Masters of Evil break into the Avengers Mansion, mm-hmm. um, wreck everything. Do they kill Jarvis? 
they spoiler alert they they don't kill him but they hurt him really okay, bad okay. but they torture him in front of captain america oh. they have beaten cap and they have cap tied up and they make cap watch as they almost they they beat jarvis to within an inch of his life oh my gosh and this was some heavy stuff for the yeah movie. and they a, a lot of characters got hurt like hercules almost dies there's you know, which leads into a whole other story where they have to take him back to Olympus, and Od- or, uh, Zeus is just a little pissed that his son was almost killed, and he takes decides, oh, "I'm going to blame the Avengers for that." <laughs> See, uh, and this stuff, this is the kind of stuff where you know people make fun of Claremont and his, uh, you know, my name is Cyclops, and I have to wear a ruby visor, or my powers get out of control. I am Wolverine, and I have an adamantium lace skeleton. But you know what? You can pick up as as thick as the continuity was in Claremont's run of Uncanny X Men. You can pick up any one of those issues and start reading. You know exactly who everybody is. Yes, you and know, you are, you know that Wolverine is I'm the best there is at what I do. And <laughs> what I do is not very nice. Yes, that's exactly right. And you know what i I appreciate that mm-hmm. so much because now if you walk into a shop and pick up. Wolverine, or, or you know, really almost any book, you're lost. Yeah, there, there is, and, and I feel like it's because the publishers want to obligate you to pick up entire runs or to go find the trade or whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. But to me, that's alienating. If I pick up a comic book and I don't understand it, it doesn't make me want more. Right. It makes well, me think, oh, I guess I need to go buy something from the eighties. <laughs> right, because now. Now, we you you write for the trade. I mean, I in right, working right. in comics, I'm I'm often you know told that you know if we're giving you this many issues because we've got this is a trade, right? And yeah, I'm doing a I'm doing a book a, an ongoing series that starts this month, and even though we're doing standalone stories, I I, I had. You know, they've informed me where the trade cutoff is. Right. So right. if I have any subplots, I need to end them by that. So I mean, those are things you have to be cognizant of these days because, yes, you, you know. Now, and I, I get it. There's parts of me as a writer that likes it, and parts that don't. I love writing a good cliffhanger. Well, you don't get as many of those in comics these a, days. As a creator, you have to work within the system, and you have yes. to work to what the publishers perceive the market to be. Yes, so that's very- I, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not holding the creator's feet to the fire because they got you guys got to make a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the publishers, I think, could could maybe uh, look at it a little differently. But yeah. let's let's get back a little to to your personal work a little bit uh you've done a lot of work with moonstone mm-hmm. how as far as writing comics and i, I don't want to overlook your your work uh in prose i definitely want to cover that but as far as your work in comics how did you get your foot in the door i mean you you said you worked with a lot of buddies uh eventually mm-hmm. jeff austin sat you down and said look man you're a writer that's that's where if, if you sit down and focus on writing, you're going to get further in that. That's your thing. But how did you get your, your foot in the door to become a published comic book writer? Okay. Well, we, I was, I, I did work with guys that were do we were doing our own and I, we were doing, and so I had stuff that was published that way, but I don't, I, I don't count that 
because I was doing it myself. And back in those days, if you self-published, that was cheating or it was looked down on. Oh, really? Yeah. It's not like today where self-publishing is a little is more accepted. I, I think it's a lot um, more accepted. I, yeah. I, I actually would go so far as to say there is an elitist attitude among people who are self-publishing that look down on people who are writing for existing characters. It was completely the opposite in the 80s and 90s. If you self-published, that meant you weren't good enough for a publisher to hire you. How the tides have turned, huh? Yes, yes. And so, it's in my naivete of youth... (laughs) I and this is the early days of me having the internet and you know having access to it. This is still dial-up days, you know. Um, I'm like, okay, I need work. I was doing some local stuff. I used to do some. I did a couple comic strips that I wrote and drew for a local kids magazine that was in our local paper. I did stuff like that. I wrote for some websites and some magazines, little things like that. But I really wanted to write comics for a publisher. And so I remember it was one Friday night. I came home from the day job that I hated, and I sat down in the ha- and I lived alone. I had my own place. I was paying, you know, but I was working to pay rent. And I mean, I just yeah, yeah, you know, you have those Fridays. Well, you have those Mondays too. But um, I come home and it's Friday, and I sit down at the computer to do some work. And I, you know what? I'm going to find a publisher that's going to want to hire me. So I sat in every publisher of comics that had a website with a contact me button, I contacted. Oh my gosh, really? I spent the weekend doing that. I contacted just any and everybody. Now what did, what did you were you actually like submitting work that you'd done or was it just like, you know, hey, I write, talk to me? I, it was basically an introduction. Hi, I'm a writer. I've done this, this, and this because we had done some. You know, I mentioned I worked for the magazine. I mentioned I, you know, I mentioned I've done work, and I was like, I would love to submit something to you if you're open, if you're looking for stuff to look I at. You. Okay, that was basically. I didn't want to clog. This was also in that time you didn't want to clog people's emails up with a with a file because files were huge to open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I sent out. I don't know how many. It was a lot. I received one reply. And that one reply said, sorry, we appreciate you writing, but sorry, we are, unfortunately, we are, we're, uh, we're no longer going to be, you know, publishing. And, uh, but we appreciate your, your efforts. Good luck. Blah, blah, blah. You know, didn't hear anything from anybody else. A year goes by. I get an email. And it's from the guy who was at that company. He had taken his book to Image. And he had a writer. He was, the artist owned the character, so he would plot it and draw it, and then he had a writer come in and script it. Okay, okay. And the writer was, the writer that he was working with was leaving. And he remembered me. And he says, hey, I remembered you had sent this email. Blah, blah, blah. He says, would you be willing to do a tryout issue for free? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, 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 we got on the phone. He sent me some, he sent me some scans of the pages. We talked it out. I wrote the script. I sent the script in. I wait, wait, wait. And he goes, yeah, publisher liked it. It's coming out. Awesome. We'll be in touch. 
And I wait and I wait. And then I see them and I can, actually I saw them at a convention. And the book's out. And I'm like, great, great. And I picked it up. And this is not what I wrote. And he said, no, no, the publisher rewrote it. So I thought you said he liked it. Well, he liked it enough to hire you. He didn't like it enough to publish. He says, so we got to work out some things. But they, they're like, you need to do this. And they kind of taught me a little bit of, you know, things to do. And, but I ended up working on this book for the guy for a few years. And I had a published book in my hand. And so what was, what was the book? Uh, it was a, it was a title called Demon Slayer. Okay. Uh, uh, it was Marat Michaels was the artist and, uh, he owned the character. And when I, when I, when I did the tryout sample, it, it was an image, but when the book came out, it had moved to Avatar. So what, and, so he sent you pages of, you know, not necessarily finished art, but basically, pencils, yeah. basically what the layout was going to be and you were filling in the story. Yeah. He, he sent me the pencils. Okay. And uh we talked and he told me what was going on in the pencils. And um and then just say, uh, you know, from there I started scripting it. I asked a few questions cuz when he when he contacted me and says, "Are you familiar with this character?" I said, "Yes," even though I had never heard of her. <laughs> well, sure, and, sure. You know, as you do. <laughs> yeah. And then I hung up the phone put on some shoes, got in the car, and drove to every comic shop in the Atlanta area <laughs> and found every issue except one the, of the previous series. Because which, there, had been, there had been too many series. Which is an accomplishment, I would yes. say, because I don't know how easy that would be to do with anything today. Yeah. It, well, it wasn't easy then either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't know how even uh, uh, accomplishable yeah. It would be these days. I killed a weekend finding those seven issues. <laughs> uh, and probably spent more on them than I should have. But I had them. When he called me, I knew who she was. And, you know, but I had a few questions. And so we, we started doing it. And I, uh, so I'm, I'm scripting from, from his plots. And I'm adding bits of characterization. And then later, like, I got to write a six-issue storyline all on my own because they liked what I was doing. And the publisher knew that I was working on my first novel. And so my actual first prose sale of a, of a, a prose story was also to that publisher. Oh, nice. Um, they were starting up this uh, new adult book because they did a lot of adult books at Avatar called Jungle Fantasy. And it was this, basically there was these jungle girls on an alien planet with dinosaurs. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. It's, it's, it was very a softcore type thing. I sure, mean, it sure. But it was, it was adult. It meant there, were, there was nudity. Yeah. <laughs> and some implied sex. And I wrote this short story. So it was my fir- I, the first short story I ever got paid for was also for a comic book publisher. Um, oddly enough, I saw uh, about two months ago uh, the publisher reprinted the story in, in another book. They didn't tell me; someone else did. But, <laughs> but it, it was reprinted not too long ago. So now, how does but, that work as far as you know, not dollar amounts, but just royalty wise? Like, are you a, as a creator? Are these guys taking care of you in perpetuity for the for for your work that gets reprinted? How does that work? Ideally, yes. <laughs> 
in reality, eh. yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I doubted I would see anything, and I haven't. I mean, like I said, they didn't even tell me they were doing it. Right, so. right. Um, but that was a when the book when that story had originally come out, it did really well for the publisher because I got to work with uh, Al Rio, who was a big deal artist at the time, and uh, really that it was Al's name on the book that sold the book. Right, um, right. And so, so yeah. Um, so, and but, well, and at that point, or, or really at any point, I guess, if you if you want to keep the glass half full, any project is another opportunity to get your name out there. Absolutely, that's why I started doing things like anthologies with short stories because it. When I started doing conventions, I'm like, I got two books on the table. Yeah, that sucks. We need to get some more books on the table. Well, I think that's how the missus first discovered you. I think you were in a collection that she picked up. Um, and, and I think maybe she'd met you in the shop or something prior mm-hmm. to that. But I think as far as your writing goes, I, I want to say that you had something in a collection. And she was like, oh, he's good. And and searched out uh, maybe evil ways, probably yeah. Because if memory serves, and <laughs> I yeah, I because I used to not tell people that I wrote comics when I went in comic shops. Right, that's that's what I'm thinking. And so I I I knew her just as a guy who bought comics before she you know we. It, before it got to the point, I didn't want to be the guy that walks into a comic shop and go, "Hey, hey, I'm write a writer." <laughs> you, you weren't you weren't wearing your published writer T-shirt. No, no, <laughs> no. And so yeah, so I so yeah, so it was it. it yeah, we'd known each other a little while before I, you know, she found out I I wrote some books, and I think it was I think you're right. I think she had she had seen my name in something and says, "Is this you?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me you wrote stuff? You know, we could have had stuff here on the shelf. You know? Right, right. I was like, well, I'm not a good businessman. And yeah. <laughs> obviously, I went into writing. I'm not a good... Um, so, yeah. But, no, every time... the When I look back at what I've done, I could walk you through every book that I've done on my bookshelf. I won't, because it'll take... Oh, that's a whole other... Well, hour. yeah, we'll do another episode. Uh, <laughs> I can point and go, okay, because of this book, I got to work. That book got me hired to do this. Right, right, right. I can, there is a, a nice step, like stairs of one book leads to the next. And I can, I can pretty much pinpoint from one to the other how this got me because, and a lot of times it's networking. Um, I sat next, I wrote my first novel just because I wanted to see if I could do it. And it sucked, but I did it. Yeah. So I wrote another one, and that one got published. And then I'm sitting next to a guy at a convention, and he's starting up an uh, an imprint. And he goes home with my novel, Evil Ways, and he contacts me and says, Hey, we'd love you to write something for us. So I write something from them, which gets me Domino Lady. Which, you know, and I mean, it's there's a nice step, you know, yeah, one one project helps you get the next. And then you start using the body of work to help get more work. It, it does seem like when you're cre- when you're a creator uh, of any content, really, it, everything is kind of an ongoing resume. Mm-hmm. That's any because when I you know when I talk to people, in the back of my head is okay. Well, now I'm talking to this guy, and I get to add that 
because my goal, my I say this jokingly, but I'm also serious at the same time. My goal is to get to the point where I have just enough notoriety for people to feel obligated to tell me no, <laughs> as opposed to just not hearing anything back. Gotcha. Like, that's my goal. If I can hit the level of stardom where people get an email from me requesting an interview and they're like, well, I guess I have to answer this guy. No. <laughs> that's what I want. Yeah. And 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 there's the weirdest thing for me, because I, I started out, when I started out writing, you know, you had to submit. If you wanted to talk, if you wanted to get published, you had to put together submission packets, send those in, get your form letter, curse throw it away, start the next submission. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that was, and I've reached a point, and I, this is not meant to be bragging, but I've reached a point, I don't do that that much anymore. Now I get publishers sometimes you know, contacting me on a regular basis. And I've, I've reached a point where I've had to start doing it. I've had to start going, no, I can't do that. Well, and that's not yeah. bragging, though, because you have worked hard to get to that point. To me, that's not bragging. That is a statement of fact. Well, thank you. Well, man, um, I have worked. Yeah, and it is a lot of work. I mean, I love what I do, but yeah, there's there's many a nights like tonight. You know, I'm sitting here at the desk. You know, I came in from work, grabbed dinner, sat down at the desk, did a podcast before this one. <laughs> I know, I know, double duty. I you know? I often get ESOs sloppy seconds. It's okay. It's, <laughs> I know. So it was weird. It's like I haven't done a podcast in months. I do two in one night. Two in a night. That's how you do it. Well, man, I, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time oh, to talk my about pleasure. How, how you got to where you were. And uh, I, I actually would very much like to get a little deeper into your process at some point. But I, I think we're good. Do you feel good? I feel good. Before we go, where can we find you online? What have you got on shelves right now? And how best, aside from your hopefully forthcoming Patreon, how best can we support Bobby Nash? Okay, well... My, my main website is bobbynash.com. I try to update it at least twice a week, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, I'm on all the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram. I try to post there fairly regularly, um, especially when I do conventions. I was at a convention last weekend, so posted a lot. Um, you know, uh, on shelves now, um, the Sherlock Holmes Domino Lady trade is out it came out at the end of last month um i wrote i co-wrote one of the comics that's in there uh with uh the new york times best-selling author nancy holders uh she and i co-wrote um sherlock holmes and domino lady teaming up and i also wrote a short story in there that's only in the trade where holmes and and domino lady are on a another adventure i have them i have them thwarting a are trying to solve a robbery on a train. Oh, train stuff is so good. Yes. I called it the Great Crate Robbery. Nice. Or the Crate Train Robbery. That's it. The Crate Train <laughs> Robbery. Yes. That's awesome. Because uh, one of the guys that works the train goes to, to, to sneak a sneak a little uh, nip, a nip of drink you know, while he's on duty. So he goes into the baggage car and he goes to sit down on this crate that he, he helped load so he knows what's in it. And it's empty, and it collapses under him. Oh boy! And so they so they come up and go, Mister Holmes, you can help us. And so, <laughs> um, so that so that's out. Um, starting later this month, uh, the month of June, probably June 29th, 
but it could be the week before. The first issue of Domino Lady's Threesome comic comes out. Yes. This is a, don't let the name, the title fool you. This is a <laughs> team-up book with Domino Lady teaming up with two other characters. Uh, the first two issues, it's going to come out every other month. The first two issues are written by myself and Nancy Holder. With issue number three, I take over as solo writer. And this will be my first ongoing series since Demon Slayer back in the early 2000s. So I'm very excited. And I've written five, or five issues written and are being drawn. Uh, and if they sell well, we can do more. If we don't, then probably just five. So I hope and hope that people will buy them and tell your comic shop to order them. And Yes, yes those are previews. Absolutely. So. You can go to your local comic shop uh, immediately and and uh, tell them to order Domino Lady Threesome. And if you read the the uh, previews that you do on the Needless Things site, you've been very kind to, to spotlight them there, and I appreciate that. Yes, yes. I, I always try and uh, make a point of uh, Bobby Nash work when I see it. Issue 3 should be in the next issue of previews, I believe. Awesome, which we will be, uh, I'll be highlighting at the beginning of July. So, yes, we just, uh, the, the publisher just revealed the cover last week and I posted it to my website. Um, so I'm very excited with, uh, with it. Uh, it's called, uh, issue three is called The Many Deaths of Domino Lady. And it's got a very cool cover with like Domino Lady nailed, kneeling down over a dead Domino Lady. And then her two backup characters, the woman in red and Bullet Girl are there behind them and so they have to solve the mystery of who keeps killing and women and dressing them up as domino lady awesome we'll keep uh everybody follow bobby nash on the social media look in your previews for uh bobby nash comics domino lady threesome is uh on the way and man thank you so much for coming on and hopefully we will see your patreon up sooner than later yes yes i'm uh i'm excited to to test the waters on that so i've just got to I gotta dot some I's and cross some T's and get, I wanna get ready. I wanna be ready when I go. Yeah, absolutely. So that, absolutely. you know, cause you know how it is. The, the worst thing you can do is start something and then not be ready and, uh, yeah, you can't go, where's my stuff? Yeah, yeah, you've gotta be, you've gotta be ready. So I've gotta do that. And the, the other, other than that, there's just a, a ton of writing in my future cause I've got, three novels that have to be finished pretty soon and over the weekend i was just uh i just uh agreed to do a novel based on a character that i've been pitching stories to write for for 30 years now oh my gosh really yes so for 30 years i've been trying to write this character and now i have the opportunity and this is the first place i have i've said it out loud oh nice you've got here's your exclusive little scoop it's a character called Night Vale from AC Comics. Okay, okay. I will be writing a Night Vale novel that will come out probably next year. So, fantastic. And I am yes. When the the publisher announced they had the rights, the first thing I did was email him and goes, "I want Night Vale." <laughs> so. Yeah, that's another thing I'd like to get into on a future episode with you is is how all of the the licensing and that sort of thing works, but. That is a topic for another day. For now, Mr. Bobby Nash, thank you for coming on the Needless Things podcast again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, and we'll talk to you soon, man. All right, cool. Appreciate it. That was a wonderful conversation with a wonderful guy. I love talking to Bobby. He's one of those guys that you can sit down 
and just converse with and it just flows you know what i mean like you, you don't even necessarily have to have a topic and granted i you know my intended topic was bobby nash but we kind of jumped all over the place and had what i think was a really interesting conversation uh please do go check bobby out on twitter on facebook he's got an author page and uh keep an eye out i'm telling you he he needs to set up a, a patreon for sure because he's he's a super talented guy and i think he'll have no problem raking in some some dollars uh, and as for my patrons, uh, you guys know I love you, and I really appreciate your support. And uh, always looking to hear feedback, not just from my patrons, but from everybody else as well, as to what would be, you know, what would be good rewards. That page is uh, patreon.com slash phantom troublemaker. Always evolving, always changing to suit the needs, wants, and demands of the savvy podcast fan. That's good, I should write that down, but I know I won't because I am, boy, my throat is just about to rip itself out of my neck. It feels like, what bad, bad timing. Dragon Con stuff is on the way. More details about the Dirty Dirty Con Con Game Game Show show uh, will be forthcoming. We we need to have another meeting soon. Uh, life happens, people. I, I the, the phrase herding cats is ridiculous and unnecessary because all you need to say is it's like trying to herd people because people you get more than shit more than one person involved in a thing and it becomes difficult jobs life everything else uh it's just tough but we're doing it because we love to entertain we love to go to dragon con and put on a game show and i love you guys Thank you for listening to the Needless Things Podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vic's employee. And of course, it's at needlessthingssite.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh.